Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Strap in for some science and stormy weather across the universe. When you think of planet-engulfing storms, your mind obviously turns to Jupiter, and the space probe Juno has just unleashed some fantastic new information about what's actually going on there. And we find out about some other science of super-hot Jupiter-like planets across the universe, and a decade-long pattern as repeatable as a tick of a clock in our own atmosphere suddenly changes. After launching in August 2011 and travelling for over five years to reach Jupiter, the space probe Juno has finally arrived and is starting to send back data to us. Now, it's just completed one of the first of 36 very close flybys. Um, and it's in these flybys, it grazes really, really close to Jupiter's atmosphere in a new and unusual orbital pattern each time to gather new sets of data and looks at things that it's very difficult to see from Earth. And it flies just about 4,000 kilometers above Jupiter's swirling clouds, so very, very close. And it collected a whole bunch of data, and it has sent back to Earth, just recently transmitted in August 27, 6 megabytes of data. Now, that may seem like a small amount, but it takes a long time to send a lot of detailed information back. But those 6 megabytes contain fantastic and fascinating data of the North and South Pole, of Jupiter over, over a one and a half day journey. Now, it takes a lot to pour through all that information and really understand what it's about, but it's given us our first glimpse at actually Jupiter's North Pole. And it's really, really strange. It's like nothing that researchers such as Scott Ballon, the principal investigator from Juno, from the Southwest Research Unit Institute at San Antonio, has basically said it's bluer in color than any other part of the planet. And there are a lot a lot of storms. Now, you may think that Jupiter has heaps of storms. That's not very exciting. I mean, it's got the great red spot after all. But when you think there's more storms at the pole than there are anywhere else, that is saying something because Jupiter already has an awful amount of storms. There's also none of these like striped bands across the latitudinal lines, which we norms used to seeing in Jupiter, these big, long, like stripy pattern that what we think of when we think of Jupiter's look. And they're all seeing all types of things like shadows in the clouds as well, which suggests there's a whole layer upon layer of complex storm systems and clouds up there. Now, one of the most fascinating things is something that Jupiter doesn't have rather than does have. Now, when we've sent probes to Saturn, such as the Cassini probe, we've studied some great things and found out some great unusual activity that happens there at its poles. For example, Saturn actually has a hexagon this really weird cloud pattern hexagon shape that exists on Saturn's pole. And they thought, well, maybe that's just a byproduct of what big gas giants have, but Jupiter doesn't have that. And that means that maybe we're looking at something really, really special and unique on Saturn. So learning one thing about one planet helps us understand even more about another. Now, some of the mission's instruments that are on Juno itself go not just to visual photos, but also a whole bunch of infrared and aurora mappers and these instruments give us appearing below jupiter's skin gives us a close-up of the planet which is quite interesting because planet is mostly gas so it's very interesting to try and take pictures in various ways and sort of pierce down the layers of clouds and we're hoping that it actually could reveal the first aurora on jupiter i mean we've actually have the first images for the first time 
of aurora on Jupiter's southern pole, southern aurora, when which you can't actually see from Earth. We're getting fantastic detailed images of it. And whilst this mission has much more to do and a lot more to see, in fact, this flyby is only one of many, we're starting to now get a picture of what Jupiter looks like and understand what it means to be a truly giant gas giant in our solar system. It's a huge, complex, fascinating enigmas in our universe. And they're very troubling because our solar system has four of them in it. And everything where we look across the universe, when we find exoplanets, we find an awful large number of gas giants. So Juno is a great mission to help us try and understand how these gas giants work because they seem to exist a lot in our universe and they're very difficult to understand and predict. But thankfully, some researchers working collaboration between the University of Exeter, Columbia University, and the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies have built an extensive state-of-the-art model on a hot Jupiter that we found about 150 light-years from Earth. So basically, what they did is taken the Met Office from the UK's model on atmospheric science and simulation and adapted it to be a planet the size of Jupiter but orbiting much closer to its sun, more like at the location of Mercury. So if you think about if Jupiter and Mercury swapped places, that's pretty much what they're modelling. And they, they made it a pretty sophisticated model based on adapting the parameters that we have for Earth models. And as any good model does, you actually have to compare it to something to see if it's reasonable. And they compared it to results from the powerful Spitzer Space Telescope to see if it stacks up. Now... The thing about having such a large gas giant is that you end up with some really weird convection patterns inside the atmosphere, where there's a high level of transfer between the layers of the atmosphere, which results in these crazy, extreme velocity winds that carry heat so rapidly that you start actually shifting parts of the atmosphere away from the planet itself. Which means you actually end up with like the atmosphere at least the hottest parts of the atmosphere, being shifted or pushed away from the closest point to the star where you actually expect it to be. But whilst it did help align and confirm some data, which means we understand a little bit and got it right, we also didn't get things right when it comes to the cold side or the night side of the hemisphere facing away from the star. So whilst we are getting closer by bringing our understanding of climate and atmospheric science on Earth and applying it, planets out across the universe we still have a long way to go we don't understand for example how the material the superheated gas from the hot side manages to migrate its way around to the cold side and what it does to the actual chemical composition we know it something happens there but we don't exactly know how or what it is but the simulation shows which is one that we can't actually observe in real life that the deeper you go down in a place that we can't actually observe without sending something to it deep inside an atmosphere, there's really slow-moving, large-scale circulations in the basically the, the substructure of the atmosphere. Now, these models, just like our models for predicting the weather here on Earth, 
need to be calibrated to make sure they're right, but as we improve them and understand them, we get a better understanding about how our universe works and how our neighbours in our solar system works as well. Whilst we're studying the behaviour of storms and atmospheres on other planets across our universe, in systems far away, or in, you know, in our own solar system like Jupiter and Saturn, we are also studying what's happening right here on Earth. And the chief scientist for Earth sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre has uh, been stumped. And that's a bit strange because it takes a lot to stump the chief scientist of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. And basically, something that you could sort of rely on, you know, a, a pretty standard, typical thing that happens every day, like uh, the ticking of a clock or the coming around of a football season or spring or, you know, something like Old Faithful, the geezer, if that just suddenly stopped for a day, you'd freak out and not really understand what on earth had happened. But this is basically what happened to a predictable pattern of winds in our stratosphere. And they just changed abruptly in, in a way that has never before been seen in our atmosphere. Now, winds in the tropical region of Earth, in the stratosphere, so the atmospheric layer that extends from about 16 to 45 kilometers above the Earth's surface, they circulate in an alternating east-west, east-west, east-west over about a two-year period. The westerly winds develop the at the top of the stratosphere, and they gradually sink down about or to about the uh, 16 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, while at the same time, the easterly winds sort of rise up, eventually passing each other and becoming the dominant one. Then, over time, they reverse again, and it's just an oscillating seesaw-like pattern, and that pattern repeats every 28 months. And when we first observed it in the 1960s, we coined it the quasi-biennial oscillation. And we've been capturing this data all the way back since we sent up the first high-altitude weather balloons in 1953. And that has happened every 28 months, like clockwork. East, rising, 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 being the top force of the wind in the stratosphere, and then sinking, and west, rising, 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 and back and forth and back and forth. Like clockwork, for 28, every 28 months, this seesawing effect between the winds has happened. That has happened, like clockwork, since 1953 when we've been measuring it, and probably for many, many years before that. It's never changed. Until late 2015. As the year wound up, the winds from the west started to decrease and decrease, and began their, you know, their typical seesawing descent pattern. And that sort of went fine, and everyone was like, yep, the regular pattern would be that the easterly winds would rise up and take their place. And everyone was waiting for that to happen. But instead of the easterly sort of rising up and taking their place, the westerly winds, which had decreased and were supposed to be going low now, suddenly went back up. And they blocked the, the easterly winds sort of coming into place. And this new pattern of the, the west sort of dipping briefly and then going back up held for about hmm, 
six months. And by mid-July 2016, the westerly winds fell back down again and the easterly winds rose up and the pattern returned to normal. But this is straight. Like, so we sort of like skipped a beat, so to speak, in the pattern of this clock. We skipped a beat in the, the oscillation between these two winds. And this is the first time we've ever recorded it happening. And in the words of the chief scientist of, of NASA, you have to really wonder what happened and why that change happened. Yeah, okay, it's back to normal now, but what caused it? And the answer is that scientists have never seen anything like this before, so it's quite shocking. Now, why do we care about this oscillating seesawing pattern of wind? Well, this has a great impact on the amount of ozone at the equator. It changes the ozone levels by about 10%. And that also has a lot to do with the impact levels of, of polar ozone depletion, as well as the atmospheric conditions for those regions. More storms, less storms, and so on. Now, there are two main hypotheses for what could have triggered this strange pattern. We had a really, really strong El Nino in 2015-16. Maybe that was what caused it. Or maybe it's the long-term rising trend in global temperatures, which is changing that seesawing balance. For now, we're not sure if it was just a black swan, a rare once-in-a-generation event, or a canary in a coal mine shift, which is signaling a shift, a dramatic shift in our actual atmosphere. The only way we'll tell is by more studying and more science. And that is what NASA and the Goddard Space Flight Center are trying to do. And it just goes to show the importance of understanding our atmosphere and getting it right. That way we can predict and understand the impact of our climate and any changes that may occur there, as well as, you know, do things like predict the weather and make sure we know when big storms are coming. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Storms across Jupiter and other Jupiter-like planets across our universe, plus figuring out what's happened to our own atmosphere as we study the science of storms across the universe. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.